As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Right. Welcome back or welcome to uh, Way Back Wednesday here on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. Also, uh, simulcast live on the This Is Bracket Racing Facebook page. Joining me as he has basically every Wednesday for the past, I don't know, 10 weeks or so, it is National Dragster Senior Editor Kevin McKenna. Kevin, as I, as I normally introduce you as the, uh, the, the, the brainchild of all things uh, drag, drag racing history, like a walking encyclopedia of the sport, thank you again for joining me as we look back on 2003. Uh, you're, you're far too kind. Um, feels like it's been about 60 weeks, but uh, I'll take you at your word for 10. Uh, that, that seems about right. And uh, as you noted, we're, uh, we're going all the way back to uh, 2003 this year, which a lot, a lot of really cool stuff happening in the, in the world, in the drag racing world. Um, so it should be, a, should be a very interesting hour here. All right, let's dial up the time machine. 2003, uh, for me, I, uh, I graduated Northwood University with my degree in automotive aftermarket business management and promptly moved from North Texas to Huntsville, Alabama. I actually had a real job for a brief period in my life uh, working at Huntsville Engine with Bones and the boys at the time. Um, and it kind of set the stage not only for uh, a career that I probably always envisioned um, somewhere inside the sport of, of drag racing, but also... Uh, and, and this was part of the reason for the move to just position me in a much better place to go racing, um, you know, North Alabama, uh, then and now really kind of a, a mecca of big dollar bracket racing and just a little bit more centrally located for maybe not so much the NHRA stuff. It's probably uh, six to one half dozen the others there, but particularly the, the IHRA stuff at the time and uh, in big dollar bracket racing. What about you? What was going on in 2003? It's funny. I racked my brain to try to think of anything really significant. And um, there wasn't anything, although, although I do know that was the year I, I had always, uh, for about 10 years, ridden sport bikes out in California and was lucky enough never to have uh, an accident or anything. And, and I finally gave up that and bought 
uh, my first muscle car, which was a 70 Roadrunner. And ever since then, I've kind of always liked to keep an old car around. So that, that was kind of the start of, um, of, of that deal. And uh, it, it was a fun project to, to put that car together and build it. And um, uh, like most people, I, I regret getting rid of it, but, it, but at least I've, I've always managed to replace it with something else. What does your muscle car collection include today? Uh, well, right now I've got a 66 Chevelle SS. Um, and then of course I've got the, the newer Mustang that I race, but in the past, I mean, I was kind of a Mopar guy. I've owned a couple of Roadrunners. I had a 69 Super B. I had a 67 Chevy two four speed car. Um, just a little of this, a little of that. And I, I tend to kind of keep them four or five years and then uh, kind of, you know, see where the market is and then maybe get into something else. But, uh, I, I like my current Chevelle, so I will probably hang on to it for a while. Nice. Um, as we kind of set the stage for 2003, this was the year that uh, Saddam Hussein finally captured um, by the U.S. 4th Inf Infantry Division. Toyota overtook Chrysler as uh, to get the number three slot in U.S. car sales. That was a, a bit of a, a precursor of things to come, I think. Uh, on, a, on a down note, the, the Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated over Texas upon reentry, killing all seven astronauts on board. Yeah, and, and, and a side note to that is the captain of that flight, William McCool, was a guy who, being based in Houston, would come out to the Houston NHRA national event. So a lot of our guys knew him. I think a lot of the drivers knew him. Uh, a lot of the NHRA crew knew him. So, you know, that, that, that added just, uh, you know, another um, uh, a more personal touch to that tragedy. Good question. I just see on the, uh, on the Facebook Live feed, Ryan Gleghorn, as he likes to each week to weigh in to make me feel old. Um, he, he just as a reminder, as I was graduating college, Ryan was nine. So I, uh, I appreciate that, Ryan. Thanks. Um, sports in 2003, Lance Armstrong wins his fifth Tour de France title. Uh, as it turns out, he may or may not have help along the way. I don't know. Um, Super Bowl, it was the, it was the Gruden Bowl. Uh, this yes. was the year that uh, Gruden coached the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to defeat uh, his former team, the, uh, the Oakland Raiders, in the Super Bowl. And, and me being, I'm not a huge football fan, but my team is the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So that, that, that was a huge weekend. And, and if you remember that Super Bowl, uh, it was a whitewash. It, it, yes. Gruden was, it was like he was coaching both teams. Um, he, he, knew, he knew every move. And uh, I think, what were there, five interceptions thrown, I think, in that game? And it was uh, one of the highest points totals that uh, the Tampa Bay franchise had ever had any time. And it's like, you always want to save your best for the big game. And uh, th th they clearly did that. When Gruden coached the Raiders, he really built up Rich Gannon, right? And their, their yes. relationship. And then he completely exposed Rich Gannon in the Super Bowl. So I feel like that set the stage for Gruden to become – I guess like this generation's John Madden, you know I mean? That sure. was the, the probably the defining moment. Um, I hate to, I hate to drudge up bad memories, Kevin. I know you're a Cubs fan. Oh, three was a rough year. Here it comes. Here it Florida comes. Marlins defeat the New York Yankees in the world series. That's not what we remember most. We remember most game six of the NLCS, Florida, Chicago, and uh, poor Steve Bartman, right? Yeah, the Cubs were what up three games to one, three games to two. You three thought two, right? they're gonna do this, right? They're gonna do this. They're finally, the going to, they're finally going to the World Series for the first. Well, it was it would have been 1945 to appear in the World Series, and and then the wheels came off. So that, thank, it, that, thankfully we have 2016. That's to, what uh, I was gonna say. Is it easier to relive this now? 
yeah. with the with the championship. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you you would like to think that it would have ended a decade earlier, um, but yeah, the the fact that finally after 108 years uh, that that albatross is gone. But um, but yeah, you always think about the one that got away. In hoops, uh, San Antonio Spurs defeated the New Jersey Nets to win the NBA championship. Uh, Carmelo Anthony led the Syracuse Orangemen and coach Jim Beheim to his first and to date only NCAA championship with a final victory over the Kansas Jayhawks. I remember watching that game at No Frills Grill in, uh, in Texas. NCAA women's, it was UConn over Tennessee, uh, probably the two marquee programs in that sport, I guess now Baylor and Notre Dame are up there, but certainly at that time it was it was all UConn and Tennessee. And uh, in the Stanley Cup, Kevin, it was the New Jersey Devils over the Anaheim Mighty Ducks. Couple Jill, quick. Uh, go Jill, ahead. Jill McKenna would certainly uh, remember that day well, being being a huge uh, New Jersey. Devils That's right, fan, big so. Devils fan. That's right. Yes. Uh, Apple launched uh, iTunes, which which may or may not have taken off. Um, I believe the number I'm looking at is uh, they sold 10 million songs within the first four months of launch. So that might work. They might be onto yeah. something. Um, popular movies, uh, Finding Nemo was released in 2003, as was the Pirates of the Caribbean as a, uh, as a father of a couple of youngsters. I may or may not know every word to Finding <laughs> Nemo uh, 17 years later. Kevin, walk us through the NHRA professional ranks in 2003. This was uh, the first championship for a man that's become a, an icon of our sport and uh, kind of a, uh, an extension of, uh, of recent times in Top Fuel, right? Yeah, uh, Larry Dixon, then driving for Don Perdome, uh, the, the Miller car uh, was almost unbeatable. They, they ended up winning eight events that year. Uh, Dick LaHaye was the crew chief, landslide. Um, clinched the championship uh, with Doug Kalitta finishing second with at the end of Dallas. So, so the, the final two races in Vegas and Pomona uh, were, were irrelevant as far as the championship went. So that, that's about as uh, uh, big a whitewash as you can get. Uh, in Funny Car, it was a little closer. Uh, Tony Pedregon won his first championship, which was a member of JFR. Uh, Whit Bazemore was second. John Force was third. Uh, Tony had eight wins that year. Uh, the interesting thing was after the finals, he announced that uh, he was going to leave home team, which he, he'd signed a deal with your uh, thing that he wanted to do. And, you know, my understanding was that he left a lot of money on the table, but he wanted to run his own team. And, uh, you know, it, it's, I, I guess you, you know, you reward the people that take chances in this uh, world. And, and he, um, he did, uh, go on to win another championship. So, so I think you could argue that that was a, a wise decision. Uh, we talked, I, I think it was Greg years, oh, years later, right. Kevin, that, uh, that Austin Coyle left force and how mm -hmm. shocking that seemed to be on the outside at the time. Was the sure. Pedregon mm -hmm. announcement a similar surprise in the moment? Uh, yeah, a little bit. It wasn't, I mean, I think maybe there had been some rumblings that, you know, I think Tony had always talked about wanting to do it. And then when the pieces came together, but you just to think that you would, you know, you'd been there for several years to finally win a championship. You had arguably the best car in the class at the time. To walk away from that is difficult. And, and I'd always heard that there was a significant amount of money involved that, you know, John was willing to pay him quite well to stay. And, and you think, well, do you take the security of a paycheck as a higher driver or do you venture out on your own and, and you know, kind of be have the ability to guide your own destiny, which obviously that was a little more appealing to Tony at the time. Um, 
you know, again, he went on to win a championship as a team owner, so you can't really argue that that wasn't a, a successful move. Uh, speaking of successful moves, you go to Pro Stock. Uh, 2003 at the KB team was the arrival of Jason Line as both engine builder and uh, a second driver. He came on at midseason in Columbus. Uh, with that, Greg Anderson basically destroyed the field. 12 wins in 23 races. He won the championship by 463 points over Kurt Johnson. And this was obviously pre-countdown era. Uh, again, that was another championship that was wrapped. I think he just had to win one or two rounds in Dallas to wrap the thing up. So you're on a free roll in Vegas and Pomona. And, and that I, I think it's seasons like that that sort of are the reason why a few years later the countdown came along just to kind of, you know, add a little drama to the end of the year to not have this, you know, I don't think there was probably ever a time in the 2003 season that the pro stock championship was in doubt. Greg Anderson came out swinging one early, one often. And you, you, you knew probably long before Indy that barring something miraculous, he was going to win the championship. It's interesting when we look back on that, because I, my, it's, it's funny, the tricks that memories play on you because in my mind, Anderson and that team were dominant and then added line. And I guess to some extent they were, right? But mm -hmm. that's when, when Jason came on is the first year that they actually won the championship. Now, it sounds like they were well on their way to do that regardless. Sure. But I, it's, it's interesting because I think you could look back and frame that as line was the addition that really put that team over the top. And I don't remember having that impression in the moment. Right. Now, I, I think that, that's fair to say. I mean, it, it's not a coincidence, I think, that you bring a very talented guy over from NASCAR and, and you know, you import all that technology and all that know-how. Um, that's right, because yeah, Jason it, had spent a lot of time with the Joe Gibbs team, kind of removed from his stock eliminator days and, pro and brought over a lot of that technology. I do remember that now, yeah. Correct. Um, the Pro Stock Bike Class, very interesting transitional year. You know, unfortunately, we had lost Dave Schultz and John Myers, and that was also a year that uh, Matt Hines had, had retired and Angel had switched teams. Uh, she'd left Star uh, at midseason. She went on there. That left the door open for someone else. That person happened to be Gino Scali riding Evans and Hines Suzuki. Um, he kind of snuck in there. You know, when you think of motorcycle championships, it's kind of Angel, Hines, you know, that, that family, uh, Eddie Craywick. But uh, that was the one year that uh, um, like I said, Gino came in there, had a, had, a, had a very solid year and won it. Uh, it was also, uh, on the subject of motorcycles, it was also one of the biggest upsets we've ever had. Uh, a guy named Blaine Hale won Denver. Uh, he had only won three rounds in his entire career up to that point. Uh, shows up for Denver, qualifies number 16, has two riders red light against him, another one break, and then he gets to the final uh, against Mike Berry. Uh, Blaine Hale is 006, Mike Berry is 141, and uh, here, here you have, you know, just you know, one of the reasons why they say we don't race them on paper. Uh, every now and then you get one of those kind of, oh my gosh, moments where uh, the last guy you would have expected to be holding the trophy walks away with it. And, uh, you know, that's, it, it's cool that there's still room for things like that to happen. Somewhat reminiscent of Pro Stock Motorcycle at the, at the Pomona Finals a year ago, right? Yeah, yeah, very, very close to that. And, you know, th there's been a handful of those, like, you know, Casey Spurlock winning Funny Car at Pomona in, I believe, 1990. Just some some really kind of oddball shouts to Hollywood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So just some you know uh, 
very, very unexpected things. And, you know, and it, it, it tells you that this sport is not as predictable as some people would, uh, would have you believe. Uh, uh, a, f a few other kind of oddball notes. Um, I, I know late in the year, there was a thing John Force had a, a, a crystal trophy break on him. He cut his hand. Uh, originally, he announced that he was going to miss the finals. Uh, and then I, I guess he eventually got it, uh, you know, where he could actually drive. Um, did that, but but I, I just remember hearing about that and uh, kind of an odd thing to think that you know your your icon might actually have to miss a race because he he cut his hand. One of the hazards of having too many trophies on the wall, yes. right? Yeah, well, that's, that's maybe that's why wallies are, are made of wood and, and metal instead of glass. <laughs> Probably, I, think, I mean, with the exception of one falling off the wall and hitting you in the head, like wallies seem relatively safe as far as as far as trophies go right yeah you would think i'm not, I'm not aware of anyone ever being injured by one <laughs> <laughs> if you know of a, of a haphazard wally incident be sure to let us know because that's yes, absolutely yes. uh -huh. uh, again a, a couple of little little uh, oddball notes uh remember that year uh, looking this up dean scusa did a promotion with meatloaf the the, the singer and uh you know we, we do that from time to time where they'll do a diecast thing maybe a charity thing uh he enjoyed Sonoma so much that he basically stayed till the end. And I just remember being in the tower and his, his management, he actually had a show to do in town that night, basically dragging him saying, we have to go, you know, you're on stage in two hours. And he's like, no, no, I want to watch one, one more round of these guys. This is the coolest. So, so I, I always thought that was neat. You know, sometimes you get the, the celebrities that come in and they're really just fulfilling a contract or, or they don't really have the thing, but um, this was clearly a case where a guy was having the time of his life. I love the way you had to preface that because Dean Scusa did a promotion with Meatloaf, the, the singer, right? Yeah, because right, Dean right. seems like the kind of guy, like he could do a promotion with Meatloaf, right? He, he, he probably could, yeah. He <laughs> would have had sa samples in his hospitality area. <laughs> um, and, and another uh, thing that most people probably wouldn't remember, there was an incident in Chicago where uh, Bruce Allen and Jim Yates were racing. And Bruce, I believe, dropped a valve and the car started dieseling. And there was this, this unbelievable amount of smoke that you've never seen come out of a pro stock car. And the engine was basically, you know, when, when, when you have something diesel, it won't shut off. Well, I know Jim Yates ran over to, to try to help shut it off. And there was so much smoke, he actually got hit by the safety safari truck. And I remember it split his lip open and bust him. Uh, fortunately, he, you know, he didn't get hurt bad enough. He was able to race the next day. But I remember that just being uh, another really frightening incident. Um, and then... 2003 was also the year that Alan Johnson was hired to take over the Army car, which at the time was struggling. And obviously, the rest is history. They went on to win multiple championships. Tony Schumacher, you know, the Army car became uh, the iconic top fuel car of the decade. Better decision in 2003. Steve Jobs signing off on iTunes or Don Schumacher hiring Alan Johnson. It's debatable. Boy, it, 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 it is debatable. Uh, I mean, given the context of each, I mean, obviously with, with iTunes, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars, but if you're just taking it at face value and looking at success, uh, they, they're comparable decisions, I would say. Argument could be had. Um, as we transition into sports and racing, there was one note that you included in, uh, in, in our document that I think mm -hmm. stands out over everything else, Kevin, and the old heads will appreciate this. Ryan Gleghorn, mm -hmm. This may not mean anything to you, but there was <laughs> a time. Yes. <laughs> there was a time when when a when a 500 or a 501 light was amazing. Right now, it's 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 a time slip that you crumple up and throw away and don't show to anyone. Right, that means you're half yeah. a second late. Yeah. 2003 marked the year that that 
transition happened. We went from a perfect 500 or 400 uh, start to triple zero. I, I think it was, um, I don't know that it was necessarily welcomed at the time because we're all creatures of habit. Looking back, uh, this makes a lot more sense. I think it's easier to understand. Yeah, and, and, that, and that was the whole reasoning behind that. So if, if you had, uh, you know, for example, an NHRA race where you had some local media come out and you're trying to explain this to them, it, it's much, much easier for them to understand that, you know, a triple O is perfect rather than 500 and, and how the, you know, the timing goes off either the last bulb or the green. It, it, just, it just simplified things. And obviously now, you know, almost two decades later, it's second nature. You don't, you don't give it a, a, a second thought particularly at the national event level, because you're, if you're watching all of the classes, you're having to explain that, well, 500 is perfect in this class and 400 is perfect in this class. And yeah, just make it easy. Triple zero, right? And, and that was also probably a time, uh, I don't know if it directly coincides, but you can imagine that around then uh, was when, you know, with the TV package, you've got graphics that pop up immediately. Two cars leave the starting line. You see reaction time, you know, to someone watching at home that maybe isn't overly familiar with the sport. It's just much easier for them to comprehend that, for the announcers to explain how the whole shot might work. Uh, it really just simplified things. And it was one of those things that now it makes you wonder, why didn't you just do that from the beginning? Sure, sure. it makes perfect sense in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Top alcohol drag, top alcohol funny car, world champions from 2003. Uh, one name that we almost don't even need to, to repeat because it seems like every time that we do one of these, we're talking about Frank Manzo winning the Top Alcohol Funny Car World Championship. He did that in 2003, uh, a, a meager, by his standards, 829 points, uh, which means yeah. it's, it's a few rounds short of a perfect season. Which Yeah, as, as we pointed out the last uh, last week, he, he threw in, somehow threw in a semi there. He, he took mercy <laughs> on the field in one event. And, uh, but uh, it, I guess one of these times, I probably need to go back and look at the number of 800-point seasons plus that, that Frank had in his uh, – 17 championships and uh, I think you'd find that most of them he was pretty much able to run the table at, at point scoring events and um, they're, they're just there may never be anybody that does what that man did during his career. Um, looking at top alcohol director you had Alan Bradshaw from Texas uh, came out one he won four national events so that was a very solid season for him. Um, he eventually dabbled in top fuel a little bit still around from time to time um, but that was that was his championship season. Uh, and he was running with Randy Meyer at the time, right? I believe I he was. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you move on to comp, Dean Carter, very close championship battle with Santo Volpe, who was in a, a very fast Corvette. Um, it's kind of an, Dean Carter, also in a very unique car, a, a front engine nostalgia dragster, which, which was a fairly new class at that time. It was a class that was kind of thrown in. You know, those cars were somewhat popular in the Heritage Series. And you thought, why wouldn't this make a, a cool comp class? And, um, you know, it was interesting. Those cars that they had uh, expect cylinder head had to be fuel injected. Uh, it was kind of, kind of unique. I mean, this, the class is still around. There's still a handful of them running, but uh, really kind of a unique car for comp eliminator. This was Carter's first championship. Did he win his two back to back? Uh, he, I believe he did. Yes. I, I'm thinking the same thing. I guess we'll cover that next week when we get to 2004. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. Super stock. Peter Biondo. Shocker. Right. Speaking of familiar names that, <laughs> that, that put up gaudy points totals, yes. <laughs> In the notes that you've got here, 743 points for Peter is 743 is a ridiculous number. Yes. And what stood out is uh, that's the third highest total of Peter's career. Yeah, I, I think you've, you've got the list. Like there's not 
you what is it a, a dozen two dozen drivers that have surpassed yeah. 700 yeah and peter yeah, holds the big the top three scores right yeah it, most sportsman racers would would trade a kidney for 700 points and, and peter just you know when the times he was chasing points seemed to do it routinely uh this particular year he racks up uh 743 points uh jeff lane was second with 687 which a monster total that wins a championship in almost any other year um and again as, as you noted it was only the third highest total that that P peter had had and uh just uh, another ridiculous season you might be underselling it with the kidney i don't uh, like one kidney you know yeah, i mean well, you, you've got a spare right yeah i mean i might give up a kidney for 650 you know that better right. finish third or fourth this year yeah, throw, throw in a pancreas you don't need that either hey okay. <laughs> what what kind of package can i put together here, Kevin? <laughs> stock eliminator for the third time in three years in 2003 kevin helms rowan gears Mm -hmm. to a third consecutive NHRA Stock Eliminator World Championship. Second place in 2003 won Jeff Heffler at, uh, at 662 points, which was more than four rounds behind Helms. Yeah, and of course, that was another 700-point season for Kevin Helms, arguably his best season of, of the three championships. Uh, you know, to, to rack up, you know, we, we've marveled at what he can do in a stick shift, big block car, car that needs a good racetrack to work, um, but to reel off 708 points in that car, to do it as a third championship that just it's you, you kind of run out of uh, uh, adjectives to describe how impressive that is super comp this is a familiar name and this has taken people back some of the some of the, the the younger generation may not be aware of this this was the other jack beckman won the super comp world championship in a really i don't know surprising is not the right word but um uh, unpredictable come from behind fashion like he really showed yes. out at the last two or three events of the season to kind of come out of nowhere and take this championship sure i believe, I believe he won pomona to start the year mm -hmm. won the winter nationals um you know was was, was in the mix the whole year but yes it, it was a, a a big rally at uh, the last couple events that got him there by just 14 points over gary stennett a guy that obviously knows a thing or two about winning super comp championships the um, uh having i shared the story this was from what was it 2010 where gary surpassed myself at the at the last race of this year so i, I shared my sob story of sitting you know and watching that if you ever get the opportunity kevin or any of the listeners if he'll open up about it because i think it's still a little bit of a sore subject have gary stinnett tell this story because it's hilarious right it, number right. one just coming from gary to and it takes you back to this moment because i uh, in in researching for this episode, I went back on the Wayback Machine. I looked at NHRA.com of the day. I looked at IHRA.com of the day. And those were things, right? They, they were mm -hmm. available. Sure. But it was nowhere near the depth of information that we're used to today. Sure. To that point, I couldn't find any NHRA points listed on the website when you go back to 2003. Mm -hmm. Everything was National Dragster. So... <laughs> Stinnett is telling, I don't remember how I, I heard this story, but he's got the literal like printouts of the top 10 competitors or something like that, you know, and the, the, the points that they have earned at certain events and what they're improving on, things like that. It wasn't just something that you could pull up on the screen of your phone, right? And so he gets through, I guess, 
perhaps I don't remember at that time if it was the Vegas divisional that led up to Pomona or what, but Beckman had won, I think either Vegas or the Vegas divisional to give himself a chance. And it was one where whoever it was that, that Gary was most concerned with points wise lost. And he's like, all right, this looks really good. And Beckman won. And it's like his mom or a friend or somebody calls him. And I was like, well, that Beckman guy, he's still got a shot. And Gary's, to tell the story, he's like, so I'm thumbing through the trash can in my trailer to find the sheet for Jack Beckman. I'm like, wait, what does this guy got to do? And he still had to go four or five rounds at Pomona. He yeah. did that. He didn't end up winning Pomona too, but he obviously did just enough to win the championship. And I think this is an inter- – it'd be interesting to get Jack's um, perspective on this because I, in my mind, it's like a picture into the power of positive thinking. Mm-hmm. But – Beckman coming into Sunday, I believe, you know, he had to win a round or two rounds or whatever the case may be. Like, I think he's handing out and his crew is wearing Jack Beckman world champion t-shirts before the round. Right. And so I think there's something to be like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, this is how this is going to happen. I've got so much confidence that I printed whatever it was, a hundred, 500, whatever shirts. And then he comes through, pulls through and does it like, um, pretty cool story. Yeah, and, and again, we, we, it was a very unique car. If you'd ever seen Jack's Blackbird dragster, it, it was kind of just designed after the Blackbird SR71 spy plane. It had a, a mono wing, it had a canopy, it had the tiny front tires. It was not a very big speed car, which, you know, fortunately in that era, there weren't as many as there are now. Um, but, uh, you know, Jack was kind of a guy that, uh, you know, not afraid to do things his own way. And, you know, you look at what has happened to him since then, you know, it was barely a, the following year, he was diagnosed with cancer, or he said, fortunately recovered from that, and now has gone on to, uh, you know, a, a, have a great career as a Nitro Funny Car driver, including, uh, you know, a, a Funny Car Championship in uh, 2012, I believe. You say so. Yeah. All right. So, Supergas, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to veer off track here just because mm-hmm. the 2003 Supergas NHRA World Championship it was one by one, Brian Robinson. Many of you know Brian uh, and I partnered on a stock eliminator car. Brian was the best man at my wedding. Brian, I still probably consider my best friend in the world. Now, admittedly, in 2003, we knew each other, but we hadn't gotten particularly close yet. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was admiring from a distance. I will say this. I was close enough to know uh, this was, I believe, Brian's first serious foray into NHRA competition. He had run with Scotty Richardson and the Ride and Decal team um, for a brief period the year or two prior. So he had some super class experience, but Brian was a bracket racer and he got the opportunity to drive. He had his dragster and he had this um, undercover roadster that was super fast. You know, at the time, I think he went 990 at 170, which is still fast today. It was unheard of in 2003. So he's chasing everyone. And Brian admittedly had like no technical knowledge of the throttle stop thing like there was no there was not a great deal of of science involved not that that class obviously hadn't come near as far technology wise as it has today but i'm fairly confident in saying that there was not a round in 2003 where brian staged going slower than like 980 on purpose he just held a ton and he was a good enough driver and had a fast enough car that he just obliterated people he won uh the the gator nationals which unique side note this is the year that the sportsman eliminations of the gators was actually moved to orlando because i believe the pits were so wet it couldn't be contested at gainesville Mm -hmm. 
Yes. So uh, it was, I think they'd had the divisional at Orlando the previous week. Everybody went to Gainesville, got through tech, per perhaps, I don't know, maybe they just turned them around immediately and were back at Orlando to contest that. Yeah, I, I think it was announced early in the week, but uh, uh, one of those things that you tried to make the best of a bad situation. And, you know, I, I do remember for that, there being a lot of, um, a lot of complaining, but in the end, when you were in Orlando, the guys, they were on dry ground, got plenty of runs. So, um, you know, it's you, sometimes you do what you have to do, but, but, you know, to, to, to me, I always, Brian Robinson, I know Brian a little bit, knew his dad, Johnny, a, a little better, you know, from bracket racing. One of the things I've always enjoyed when people like that win the championship, uh, you know, the, especially people from back East who, you know, they were, they were from Mississippi. Um, you know, probably never come to California for anything other than the finals or the banquet. Well, when you get people like that and they come to Pomona, win a championship, and then get to go to Hollywood and have this this lavish banquet on Hollywood Boulevard, and, and you see these people in tuxedos, it's just a whole different dynamic. And I've always thought that was kind of cool for people who, you know, might never have gotten that opportunity. I mean, obviously, you've had a chance to do it twice. Um, but it, it, it's to me, it's just really a, a neat thing to see that kind of the uh, the difference in culture and, and, and a chance to do something that you might not have ever gotten to do. Yeah, or, or thought to do, right? Sure. Um, and to that point, this is funny too, because this is probably seven, eight years ago, so about 10 years removed from Brian's championship. We are racing at, I don't know that this would necessarily, the Brian would call Fulton, Mississippi his home track, but I, it's one of the tracks that he grew up at, right? And this place is it's just to set the stage it is they don't have enough shutdown room to run a full eighth mile so it's like <laughs> 600 feet right yeah so, and then there's not a drag around the premises right it's just very backwards well we're there and everybody knows brian right because he grew up there basically mm -hmm. and i'm standing on the fence watching brian race and he wins and this man beside me is like yeah man you know that brian he sticks weird at this he might get it figured out one day. He's going to be pretty good at it. And I turned to him and I go, you know, he won the NHRA world championship, right? And this man looked at me and goes, Brian Robinson? Hell. And that's just like, that's the persona that he and Johnny have always maintained, in, sure, sure. Uh, you know, among that crowd, like so humble, you'd never know that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously, in my opinion, I'm biased. He's one of the most gifted, talented racers I've ever been around. Um, just one more quick story from that year, because again, I wasn't super close with Brian at the time. Uh, got to be super close with him over the years, and got to be super close with uh, with Mark Horton now, uh, or formerly of American Race Cars. Well, this was kind of Mark's heyday as a racer too, driving with the the Fly in the Summit colors at the Bristol National event. Brian's in contention for the Super Gas World Championship, and I believe it's the last time trial kicks the rods out of the motor in his Corvette. So he's loading up to go home and Horton rides over to his trailer. and He's like, Hey man, I've got a motor. If you want to put it in and at least have a chance for first round. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, yeah, hell, I'll, t I'll take you up on that. That's cool. So they go over there and you know, the whole pits help change mm -hmm. motors. So coming into first round, Horton is pretty prepared, right? He's got log book out and he's like, so what does this thing weigh with you in it? You know, he's got the calculator and he's like, all right, so, everything's set up like we put the throttle stop on my car off of it like this number right here should get you real close like that should be like 88 and brian looks at him and goes well about what's your ratio 
He's like, well, it should be right around three to one. And Brian promptly takes a second out of the timer and says, so that should be like 950 something. And just like, I'm, this is Mark telling me the story and his eyes get real big and he's like, well, uh, yeah. So he goes and wins that round and just pumps it all the way down the track, wins. They come back. Mark figures up, looks at the time slip against the logbook. He's like, man, we were really close. You were going, I mean, you, you barely made it to eighth mile, you know, but it looks <laughs> like you were going like 954 or somewhere like that. And I was like, all right, cool. And Mark just kind of stepped back and stayed out of the way. Well, when Brian lost it, I think it was six cars left in the event. Mark looked down at the delay box and it still had the same number in the timer from the first round. He's going 950 something the whole race. <laughs> That's just the way he rolled. <laughs> Uh, quick notes from uh, NHRA Sports in that year. Dan Fletcher, only two national event wins in 2003. Conversely, I think the two that we always discuss together, uh, Fletcher and Rampy, Rambo collected eight national event victories. In yeah, including a couple in Stock Eliminator. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just him uh, running roughshod over the comp field. And then uh, tell me about Al Vanis. Uh, you know, we, we went to Englishtown uh, that year, and uh, Al Vanis, an older guy who had, uh, I believe it was like an N-stock automatic, uh, an old Pontiac, like, Grand Prix, uh, he wins Englishtown in 2003. His only other NHRA national event win had been the U.S. Nationals in 1974. So it, it was 29 years between national event wins, which I'm not sure if that's still a record because we've had a couple guys, uh, you know, have, have won uh, more recently. I know Chuck Gallagher won a national event in 73. So, but, you know, anytime you get more than about 15 years between national event wins, it's pretty significant. Um, but, but here was a guy who was still going strong after all these years. And uh, you can only imagine, and it might well, uh, I'm not 100% sure it wasn't the same car because th this Pontiac was about a 72, 73 model. So it might have been something that he won with brand new in, in 74 and then comes back, uh, you know, again, almost three decades later to, to win again. Just imagine how special that second win and how different it feels. Like there's got to be a point early in your career, like I'm going to win a bunch of these, you know, and then to have the, the perseverance or the stick to or whatever to stay with it without tremendous success and then visit that stage again, you know, almost three decades later. It's got to be pretty neat. Sure. And you look at how much this sport changes in, say, yeah. a five-year period. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the difference in the driving and the technology. You know, even in a class like Stock Eliminator, where the technology is somewhat restricted, uh, a 1974 car and a 2003, there's nothing about those two vehicles that, that, that compares. There, there's no bit of technology that that crosses over. So yeah, that, that's, that's a pretty impressive feat. And uh, it obviously also speaks to a lot of dedication to, to stick with it and never give up. In the IHRA ranks from 2003, we'll just briefly run through the, uh, the world champions and, uh, and possibly some notables. Top fuel was no surprise. It was Clay Milliken. That Warner team was, was dominant for a half decade there. I want to say it might've been six consecutive world championships mm -hmm. in IHRA. Uh, Mitch Stott, Pro Modified, Robert Atchison and Funny Car. Brian Game and Pro Stock. Top Stock was a man by the name of Joe Alois Jr. Uh, Marco Abruzzi was your top sportsman world champion in 2003. That's a familiar name. Uh, top Dragster, also a familiar name. Mr. Nick Folk won the IHRA World Championship that year. Nick, a multi-time champion in the IHRA ranks, also has an NHRA Super Comp title uh, to go with those trophies. Super Stock world champion was Jeremy Mudd. 
IHRA stock eliminator, Michael Beard, one of several championships for Beard on the IHRA side. Quick Rod, Britt Cummings, was the 890 world champion. John Vineyard, who uh, was the, the topic of a quasi-trivia time a few weeks ago. Vineyard won the 990 title that year. I believe it was just last week we were talking about him finishing number two in IHRA behind Damon Babs. Vineyard, mm -hmm. one of just a handful of uh, competitors to hold national, national championship trophies in both sanctioning bodies. He's won the 990 title in both NHRA and IHRA. Mm -hmm. Hot Rod world champion. IHRA Hot Rod is their 1090 class, uh, or was, I guess, their 1090 class. That was won by Tony Fuller back in, uh, in 2003 in the car formerly known as the Fridge. Yes. Very, very famous car. <laughs> very famous car, yes. That's the former Richardson uh, Camaro Bird, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the box national title, the aforementioned, I guess not on this show, but we talked, we've talked quite a bit about Tommy Cable and, uh, mm -hmm. and his success. This was, uh, this was a windfall for him because as we had discussed last week, I believe it was 2002 was the uh, initial or the inaugural uh, NH or IHRA Summit Super Series uh, championship that was won by Chip Johnson and it was a, a six-figure payday. Cable's rake or take-home was similar. They, they broke this up into box and no box in uh, 2003, so I would imagine that it got diminished in some regard, but this was a huge financial windfall for Cable, who I believe did all of his damage at the time uh, at Bud's Creek up at, uh, at NIR. And on um, the uh, no box side, it was Steve Dornbosch that uh, came away as the IHRA no box uh, Summit Super Series world champion. Kevin, let's switch it over to the big dollar bracket scene because uh, we've got I've got some fun memories. We've got <laughs> some interesting tidbits from 2003. Well, we, we can start with with the big one, the million dollar race, and won by a guy who really de defines bracket racing. Uh, I mean, to call him a pioneer is is very apt. It's Johnny Labou Senior. Uh, um, you know, a bracket racer since the 70s when bracket racing was created hundreds, maybe thousands. I don't know if there's another human being that has been down the A-drag strip more times than Johnny LaBoose Sr. For a guy that used to race four or five times a week, multiple cars, uh, to finally pull off the, obviously financially and otherwise, the biggest win of his career, uh, goes to the million and wins. And you and I cannot for the life of us remember who he beat in the final round. Hopefully somebody can chime in and uh, help us out here. Yeah, jump in with that. I can picture the car. It was a it was a Willys. I believe it was purple. I believe it had flames. I want to say he was from Ohio. Um, I've got a story on the Willys, right? So we'll circle back to that. But first, to your point, John LeBou Sr., like this was the the cherry on top of a, I mean, Hall of Fame career would be an understatement, right? He's, yeah. to your point, one of the pioneers of the sport. In, in researching this, I stumbled upon an article. It was part of the, the Drag Race Results Legends series. Um, it was written by Tim uh, Glover. And the quote that stood out to this for me, because Glover had speculated, and, and, and there's, a, there's a short list here that would probably include um, Chip Horton, that would probably include Bob Maxey as far as like who is the winningest drag racer of all time, just Tim, accumulated Tim the most trophies, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and Labuse is definitely in that conversation. And Glover had talked about how it was routine for John to run two, three, four nights a week in two, three, four, you know, vehicles or entries per event, right? And um, so he asked, Big John, something along those lines. Like, do you think it's possible that, that you've won more races than anyone? And Big John's quote was something to the extent of, 
yeah, that, that might be possible. But what people forget is that I've almost certainly lost more races than anyone, <laughs> you know, and that's yeah. just, that sounds like a, that sounds like a John LeBou senior quote, right? Yeah. So, kind of like Pete Rose. Pete Rose is known you know, for, for many things, but nobody in professional sports won more games than Pete Rose. But conversely, because his career was so long, uh, he also lost more than, than, than almost anyone. Um, and, you know, it's funny that that list, it, there's no way to tell for sure, but some of the people, as far as the most successful racer of all time, as far as wins, you know, we know people like Frank Manzo winning 267 Wallies in his career. Well, I mean, that's fine for a guy that races an alcohol funny car, but a bracket racer that, again, as we've just noted, can race multiple times a week in multiple cars. And many of these races, six, seven, eight, nine, sometimes now even 10 rounds, you think of how many times they go down the drag strip. Um, again, it is a short list of people who really just have that, you know, again, some of the people you mentioned, Bob Maxey and, you know, some of the pioneers, uh, you know, I think George Rupert a little bit, uh, Tim Butler, uh, the motorcycle guy, Roy Hagedorn down yeah. in Division Two, a guy that I've known since I was a teenager, still going strong, still races a motorcycle a couple nights a week and wins more than his share. I mean, we're talking about probably in the thousands of first place finishes. Yeah. Um, Steve uh, Taylor, probably another one that's on yeah. that list somewhere. Yeah. Um, Okay, so bring it back to the, the runner-up. And again, nobody's chiming in with the name here. I, I've, there's something that sticks in my head, but I'm probably wrong. I'm not even going to share it. Anyway, this dude's in a Willys, right? He was parked next to or near Gary Williams. And I remember Gary, like, befriending this dude long before the mill, you know, early, early in the week. He's like, you got to come talk to this guy. This guy's awesome, right? And so we're watching him. I, I don't remember if it was the early rounds of the million, perhaps, or maybe it was even the day before. But he's staging the car. I want to say he's in the right lane. And I mean, like, noticeably pointed at the wall when he staged. Like, so we come back and he goes on down the track. And I think it was Gary because they developed a friendship. He's like, man, you know you staged really crooked, right? Yeah, man, this thing's leaving hard to the left. So I'm just pointing it a little bit to the right. And Gary and I look at each other. We're like, man, there's things you can adjust. Yeah, man, but I, man, I might screw that up. Like, it's fine. I just aim it a little bit. So this dude literally went to the final round of the million dollar race staged. I mean, if you were behind him, you you wanted to go up and stop him and be like, dude, you are gonna hit something, right? And they just and just make a little S and right back in the groove. So my man is down to three in the million. He's got the buy to the final. And Gary is just beside himself. He's like, man, this dude is getting paid. This is awesome. Watch this guy do it. And we're standing under the bridge there at Memphis. And he pulls up behind Big John and whoever Big John was running the semis, right? Memory fails me. And they're in the water box and the man in the willies gets out and he's just watching, doesn't have his jacket on or anything like that. And Gary's like, are you, are you just, are you not going to make the buy? And he's just got this dismayed look on his face like, no, nah, man. There's like something wrong. And he's, he was by himself and he's kind of embarrassed to share it, but he says, man, this sounds dumb, but I know I got enough alcohol to make one more run. I don't know if I got enough to make two. So I'm just going to sit out by and Gary looks at him and says, there's 600 cars here. You're going to the final of the million. If you want to make the run, I will find you some alcohol. And the guy like lights up. He's like, awesome. Gets in his car, straps in, takes the fire. <laughs> we go find him a couple gallons of alcohol for the final. 
And at that point, even if he had to buy it, uh, the, the man's got enough money to buy He's a couple gallons. Yeah. <laughs> I think you can swing it. <laughs> so good times at the million in 2003, uh, John LaBoose. And uh, so at the time, like it, it felt like Big John was, I don't know, like beyond his prime, right? He's still out there doing it at a yeah. high level almost you know 20 years later and i think even more um like impressively and and maybe just visually um surprising at the time like he wanted in a in a in a dragster yes but it was an old woody car like it was probably a 20 year old car in 2003 right it was not a solid car right yeah it was definitely it was a solid car slower just looked outdated obviously got the job done with one of the best to ever do it behind the wheel so Good times from the million. Um, World Superbro Challenge is always one that we circle back on. It's, it's at this point, perhaps the longest consecutive running um, big dollar bracket race in the land. Um, this was the year that uh, Big E, Edmund Richardson, won the 50 up at Stanton. I was there. I don't have a great recollection of much of anything else other than Edmund winning. You know, I'm trying to think if there's anything significant that Edmund hasn't won. I mean, I guess he's never won the million, but that uh, was one thing that really jumped out to me. Like (laughs) just in doing these, like his name just pops up every year. Like it's one of those things he's been so good for so long. I think we tend to take his success for granted. And to your point, like if you're trying to stack up career achievements, I don't know that there is a more impressive career in totality than Edmund Richardson's. I mean, no. he's, he's, a, he's a given when you discuss the, the greatest drivers, sportsman drivers of all time, it's a given that he's in the top 10. I almost think like wherever we place him, you should probably reevaluate. Like he probably deserves to be a little bit higher just based on, yeah. on accomplishments alone. Yeah. And it certainly isn't a fluke that back, you know, we talked last week about NHRA uh, doing the, the top 50 list of, of drivers and for Edmund and Scotty and David Rampey to all make that list. You know, I mean, I mean, we're talking everyone. I mean, this this was, you know, Nitro drivers. This was Garlitz, Muldowney, Jenkins. But to have those guys on that list kind of speaks to their greatness. And one of the things I love about Edmund is um, uh, his attitude towards the whole thing. I mean, obviously, the man is not lacking for confidence, uh, but it doesn't really come across as arrogance. I mean, I, I think he's hilarious when he uh, – I've seen him look at a time slip and say, you know, that old boy should have just saved the fuel, you know? And, and, it's, and again, you know, to, in somebody else, it might come off as, as just being horribly arrogant, but it's just Edmund knowing his worth and, and knowing what he's capable of. And uh, I, I think it's fantastic. Well said. I, I've, got a, I've got a classic Edmund story. I, I think I've shared this before on the podcast, but I'll, I'll, we'll circle back to it because it'll come up here in a minute. Um, thank you to Tim Hum. Uh, do we have a winner? Terry Neubauer. There you go. I, I would have got that. Never. <laughs> See, I was close. I was going to, like, I had something in mind. I had Terry and I had N, but at Newbauer, I, I, I didn't quite have. So, shouts to Terry Newbauer and angle staging and alcohol. So And, and, and old willies. If you want to go win, win a million, there's your magic formula. If you had laid odds coming into that million, hey, the final round's going to be a 20-year-old Woody Dragster against a willies. You could have you come out pretty well. Yeah. Not a likely outcome. All right. Um, and what else we got? We got Moroso, 2003. Um, looks like some familiar names there, Kevin. Yeah, th- th- this, this will not come as a surprise to any of you. 
this was the year that Jed Coughlin went down there and uh, sh showed the boys that he's not all uh, just pro stock and, and Hollywood and glamour and whatnot. Uh, he wins two days of the, of the Moroso and the overall. Your other winners, Shane Carr, Jeff Strickland, Mark Seymour. Uh, so yeah, pr pretty much a star-studded roster as you have most years of Moroso. Um, and an interesting side note though, you know, this was a couple of years when they started doing the duck race, which for those not familiar, if you had gone the for all five days and not one around, because uh, again, a race with, with at the time, no buybacks, um, you actually had Aaron McCullough in there. Now, what That's kind what of odds, what kind of odds would you have gotten about that? And, and I think at the time, Dick Moroso had put up maybe 500 or a thousand. Mm -hmm. and, and there were some guys that this was usually eight to 10 cars because there were some guys that could not be shamed into even participating into it. Uh, you know, they, they didn't want to let everybody know that they'd been there all week and hadn't won around. Um, but yeah, that, that's almost as, uh, you know, su surprising as, as some of the other winners you see. Yeah, no, I, that's what I mean. Even the duck race winner is a, is a big name, right? McCullough yeah, winning yes. that. And to your point, yeah, they, I distinctly remember, I won't, I won't th shove them under the bus, but I distinctly remember one of the biggest names in the sport uh, uh, failing to win around at Moroso and, and bowing out. Just, it, yeah. I, I'm not going to participate in the duck race. Not, not because cause, cause what would be worse losing the first round of the duck race and now you go home with Ooh. six L's? Yes. And, and that's something that almost nobody does. So I, I guess if, if it's just not your week, sometimes maybe it's best just to throw the white flag and try again. It's um, either that or you go hit the pace car. I mean, hell, I, yeah, well, I just I mean, want you to be perfect. That's, that's it. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but but to, to get a little more in-depth, it, it's, you know, we, we talk about some of the greats and it's, it's also hard to understate the, the talent that Jed Coughlin has. Uh, I mean, I mean, obviously he grew up as a sportsman racer. He, he knows the drill. He keeps up, but to be idle for long periods of time, to be off doing the pro stock thing, maybe go an entire year, you know, months, sometimes even entire year without bracket racing and show up and he's right in the middle of it. And that, you know, you could probably speak to what a long layoff does and what it takes to get your timing back, uh, things like that. But I've, I've always been impressed by his ability to do that. Now, I find that one of the most impressive things in racing and, and Jeg's done it. Peter's done it. Um, I've watched Tommy Phillips do it. Jeff Heffler comes to mind after a few years mm -hmm. off, just jump back in and, and seemingly pick up right where he left off without missing a beat. I, I don't know what the, the skill set is to allow that, but I, I think it's special. I don't think it's common by any stretch oh, of the no. imagination and, and, and Jake's got it. Um, a couple other notes from the, from the bracket scene in 2003. I, I struggled. I was there. I remember this. I don't remember the details specifically. Um, Tentuck, I believe it was the, the summer Tentuck. So it would have been July of mm -hmm. 2003. Um, Jeff and Don Strickland win, 10 tuck. The final round of the race that Don ultimately won was between Don Strickland and Danny Northrup. Mm -hmm. And the, it, your note says it had to be rerun. I'm 90 plus percent sure that they ran that final three times. Okay, it, it was, I know it, the note that I came across said a Christmas tree malfunction. So obviously something didn't add up in the numbers. Uh, and uh, again, it was just a brief note, but it said that, uh, you know, it may well have had to been rerun twice. It didn't say that, but it did say that uh, track operator Dallas Jones added three grand to the payout. I think they got eight grand a piece. They split it uh, as a make good just for right. Yeah, basically their troubles of having to go through you know multiple pressure pack finals. Yeah, I don't remember the details. I remember whether it was 
Danny's win light coming on or the general consensus was that Danny won like the first one. It seemed like it was unfair to him at the time, or, or you could make a case either way, obviously, but it's seeming, seemingly unfair that they had to rerun the second one. And then I remember after the second one, they were both like, what in the world? You know, like, what do we got to do to finish this race? So well, at that, that point, don't you just contemplate splitting the money right down the middle, calling it a day and flipping a quarter for the trophy? Yeah. And it seems so odd too, because I don't remember there being massive field-wide issues. It was just on the final round on two consecutive rounds that something bizarre happened. So Dallas comes through like you would, I mean, you hold a, hate to hold anyone to that standard and just take $3,000 out of their pocket. But if you would expect anyone to do that, it's probably Dallas Jones, right? Yeah. One, of, one of the more uh, upstanding um, track owners, promoters, like he's, he's the guy that that comes uh, as no surprise. There, right? There's a reason why he's been in business for 40 years and continues to have one of the, one of the nicer tracks in the country. Yeah. That's, yeah. um, um, Memphis in 2003 had a series called the Mega 10 series. I believe that this went on for a couple of years and it was a, a fairly lucrative series. I believe that all of the individual races were 10 granders, but there was a, I think it was a three weekend series and the overall champion was, there was a significant points fund, including a new uh, racecraft dragster to the winner. We got notes from the final event of the, the Mega Tens in 2003, which is one of the events that really stands out in my mind for a, a number of reasons. Number one, mm -hmm. my buddy Bones wins, uh, win, won a day of the event to win the, the season-long points championship he took home the dragster. Uh, other daily winners from that last Mega, Mega Tens, Edmund Richardson, no surprise, <laughs> Todd Burks, and, and said that Bones won one. The reason that this stands out to me, I'm 99% sure this is the, the, the right event. <laughs> this was a, an era where people really started to uh, to get, um, I, I guess, defensive to really take personally the uh, okay, go through the finish line, win light comes on, and we just give it a few extra pumps to make sure that you realize that the wind light's on, right? And admittedly. This is one of those things that has always flown all over me. Like, you just freaking beat me, right? And I tend to, to take wins or losses kind of with a grain of salt, right? But I'm just telling you to this day, my first instinct when I hear the throttle pump after the finish line and the other wind light's on, my first instinct is to cut the wheel and wreck both of us. Like, it just flies all over, right? And so there, was, there were a couple of scenes this weekend where this – this A had become really popular and people tended to attribute the, the start of this to Scotty Richardson. I don't know if that's fair. Like I don't really ever remember Scotty rubbing one in like this, but mm -hmm. I know when people talk about ripping past the finish line, we call them Scotties, right? Again, I don't know that that's fair to Scotty Richardson, but this really came to a head this weekend. And there were a couple of near fights. Like there was a lot of tension around this. So bones, the, the day that he ultimately won at, three cars three or four cars left he still had two cars in and uh and he runs another is a younger racer uh, very talented racer right I'm, I'm not gonna name names but the other racer beats bones in the semis and i mean lets him hear it like to the turnoff and bones surprisingly because he can be kind of hot-headed right mm -hmm. comes back gets in the other car doesn't say a word well meanwhile his wife leanne who is normally the mellow one is fit to be tied. I mean, <laughs> upset, right? So Bones comes back from winning the other semifinal, or perhaps he had the bye run, I don't know. And she, who 
the end who never says anything as, as Todd's getting out of the car says, when you beat that, blah, 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 you let him, I, I ain't having that. You know what I mean? Like you do him like he did they're, So they're mad. Bones ends up winning, winning the final and nothing really comes to a head. Everybody's talking about it, but nothing's happened. So this is where Edmund comes into the story. We're all, you know, post-race celebration, whatever. Everybody's had a couple and the whole, all parties involved are, are around there. Perhaps Bones wasn't, but the, the, the gentleman that he ran in the final, Edmund, and I happened to be standing in earshot. And Edmund walks up to the other racer and says, hey, man, I know everybody's upset with you. I know, you know, like whatever. He said, but I've been trying to defend you, man, because, hell, you was excited. You know, I mean, you went like, come on, you pumped up. And I'll be honest with you, man, if I was you, and I beat him, I'd be excited too. And that was the end of the conversation. And I just thought, that's perfect. Well, which begs the question, do, do you believe that all's fair in, in love and war? Where, you know, no, this guy knew that, likely knew that he was going to be facing Bones twice, right? And, and if you had an opportunity within the rules to throw him off his game, to, to upset him, to maybe do something that, could have helped you in the final, right? I mean, if he'd have gone up there in the final, just steaming mad and turned it red by three thou, well, I don't know. Maybe it's unethical. Maybe it's unsportsmanlike, or maybe it's something that would qualify as acceptable behavior. I don't know. I don't, like I say, it flies all over me. Um, but I don't know that I necessarily have a problem with it in that light. I just don't think I could ever do it because I feel like it put as much pressure on that guy as it did on bones. Like at that point I've put myself in that situation once in my life. And I remember putting the helmet on It was different situation, but similar. I remember strapping the helmet, just, Oh, like I'm going to, I'm going to get this. And about the time I pulled the car in gear, it dawned on me. Like if this wind light doesn't come on, I am a complete jackass. And it just <laughs> like you had to take a, a little bit of a deep breath there. So I think there's, there's psychology that works both ways. Um, but no, I don't, I don't guess I necessarily have a problem with it. I just feel like you, you kind of come off like a dick. Well, and, and at some point, karma does have a way of taking over. And, and yeah, you, you, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So uh, if, if you're, you know, if you're going to do that, you should at least uh, expect to, uh, to get as much as you give. Uh, I think that pretty well wraps up 2003. Some shout outs, closeouts. Kevin, let's bring this back to current day because we're what? three weeks away from the NHRA season resuming in Indy? We, we are. Think, think, things are shaping up. My understanding is that, uh, you know, there's going to be limited fans, but my understanding is that they've sold a, a fair amount of tickets for this. We've had some exciting news uh, as far as Tony Schumacher coming back for the two events, Corey McLenathan coming back for the two events. So uh, the professional fields look pretty solid. And, you know, hopefully – you know, you watch the news and, and some of it's a little concerning as far as what's going on in other parts of the country. But as far as right now, today, the schedule as proposed looks like a go for the NHRA Professional Series to get up and running. We've had some successful Lucas Oil Series events. You know, nationwide, they seem to be uh, coming. You know, you had an event in Division One last week. You had uh, the Division Five race. Uh, all, all had nice car counts, you know, people are starting to get back into the swing. You know, you can actually go on and look at the points now and they're updated. So th there, there seems to be a, a little bit of a sense of normalcy returning. Uh, it's gradual. It's probably not the rate we'd all like to see, but 
fingers crossed that uh, you know we can continue to head in that direction. On the big dollar bracket scene, we are less than two weeks away from the SFG 1.1, the the richest uh, drag race in history, and it's not close. I mean, it basically doubles the the richest previous payout. Um, so that's that's going to be awesome to uh, to watch and keep up with. Um, this weekend, I, I think it's safe to say that US 131 will be packed. Um, there's a IHRA Sportsman Spectacular there, so I think that's two five granders. It might set a record for most entries in, in two in five, five granders, grand. right? Like everybody getting in there. Uh, I'll be, I'm actually really looking forward. One of my favorite races of the year this week is this weekend up at Byron Dragway in, uh, in Byron, Illinois, the Firecracker Nationals, which is headlined by a $100,000 to win event on Saturday. So Jessica and I are looking forward to going up there. Uh, hopefully some of you we will see there. And uh, like I said, I just, I love that event. It's uh, limited entries done at dark probably they do a great job of running it fireworks for the kids like it's just an enjoyable atmosphere so i'm looking forward to that um and i guess that wraps us up kevin you got yeah, any shout outs close -outs? No, i'm off to uh well you're in byron i'm off to atlanta for the uh, nmra resumption of their season nice uh, and nmra and nmca uh i put the street tires back on the mustang last night so we're gonna wheel it down there 600 miles 600 back and uh hope that uh we can continue uh some of the success I had uh, back in February. Fantastic. You were a runner-up at the first event? Right? Runner-up at the first event. So I feel compelled to see this thing through to the end and at least attend a couple more to, to, to see what I can do. It's, um, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, again, my car, it's just a street car. It, it's never been on a trailer. I hope it never, if it's on a trailer, it's broke. So I hope it never does end up on a trailer, but uh, it's kind of a, uh, my goal in that car was to prove that, you don't need a high dollar operation to build a car that's fast and fun and it requires a very minimal amount of maintenance which uh, is perfect for someone of my skill level uh, mechanically so it's quote unquote just a street car but weren't you telling me you've been like 1040 uh it, it went 1037 a couple of weeks ago so yeah it's it, it's a 700 horsepower street car um <laughs> but but it's you know again it, it really we took essentially a stock mustang we bolted a blower on it a couple other little mods here and there and uh Still gets 20 miles to the gallon. You can drive it anywhere, swap tires, and go run mid to low tens. That's awesome. That's yeah. uh, that's that's a testament to modern day technology in and of itself. It, it is the people. I have this debate all the time with people that want to talk about the good old days. I had a guy online last week that kind of went back and forth a little bit because he was talking about the early days of modified production and how you know this guy and his buddies had built a super modified car out of basically junkyard parts, and it was a high 10 second car. And you know, he said, oh, those days are long gone. And I said, well, not really. You know, you, you can still take a streetcar and with the power adders that are available, whether it's nitrous or a turbo or a procharger, whatever, um, you know, you can build a car. It, it's really not that difficult to build a nine second car these days. You, you, you can do it with not a lot of budget. Good stuff. Well, Kevin, best of luck yeah. to you in Atlanta. Uh, to all you. of you uh, listeners and or viewers out there, thank you for, uh, for tuning in and stick us, sticking with us through our way back throwback to, uh, to 2003. We will be back next Wednesday to uh, presumptively dive into 2004. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, once we hit 2004, we, we've kind of we're, we come full circle. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're going to have to uh, come up with something different. Yeah, we're going to have to reevaluate a little bit then. Yeah. We'll come up with something fun. We, we will. We will. I, I, at, at some point, I think I've told you, I, I maybe dive into Moroso five-day stories or stories from the millions or uh, 
I'm sure there's something we can do to, to entertain you people. Absolutely. I would love to dig into uh, an oral history of the, uh, the Moroso five day. That sounds like, that sounds like the next logical place to go. Sounds good. We'll book it. All right. Thanks everybody. You guys have a great Wednesday. Take care. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, This is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.